ever wonder why Jews came to America or what we found here? Come and listen. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. America is a nation of immigrants. If you are not one of the first peoples, you or your ancestors came from somewhere else. Whether we trace our roots to Africa, Europe, or Asia, we are not native to this soil. So how did Jews come to America? The story starts at the very beginning. In the 15th century, Spain and Portugal, Jews faced increasing hardships as the Iberian Peninsula moved from Moorish Muslim control to Christian hegemony. This culminated with the expulsion order of 1492, when King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella united Spain under Catholic rule. On the same day that Columbus sailed westward, Jews sailed north, south, and east as the royal edict of expulsion took place. These Jews went to safer and more hospitable countries, such as the Netherlands, Morocco, and the cities of the Ottoman Empire, such as Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul. Secret Jews, called Moranos or Conversos, also were members of Columbus's crew, perhaps seeking shelter in non-Christian lands where the Inquisition did not reach. As the Europeans began to settle the New World, a very few of the descendants of these Spanish Sephardic Jews came as well. Now living openly as Jews, they settled on Dutch-controlled islands in the West Indies, such as Curaçao, as well as Dutch Brazil and other places where they could worship freely. Most people say that North American Jewish history began in 1607, when a boatload of Dutch Jews arrived in New Amsterdam, a Dutch village later known as New York City. They had sailed from Recife, Brazil, which had passed from Dutch to Portuguese control. Like the Spanish in Mexico, the Portuguese brought the Inquisition with them to the New World, endangering this tiny Jewish community. Even though many believe that these were the first Jews in North America, they actually were met at the docks by Jews already living there. As a beloved professor of mine used to say, no Jew is the first Jew anywhere. Slowly but surely, Sephardic Jews immigrated to America, some to look for fortune, but for many, it was a chance to express their Jewish identity once again. During the Revolutionary War, Jews fought in the Continental Army, and some even helped to finance the war. When the Americans improbably defeated the British, these Jews, numbering at most several thousand, found themselves a small but influential part of the New Republic. Upon congratulating George Washington upon his election as the first American president, the Jews of Turo Synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, received the following letter from the president, dated August 21, 1790. I want to read it to you because it set the tone for official American policy towards Jews and other non-Protestants since the dawn of the New Republic. The citizens of the United States have a right to applaud themselves for having given to mankind examples of an enlarged and liberal policy, a policy worthy of imitation. 
All possess alike liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship. It is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it was by the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. It would be inconsistent with the frankness of my character not to avow that I am pleased with their favorable opinion of my administration and fervent wishes for my felicity. May the children of the stock of Abraham, who dwell in this land, continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in our paths, and make us all in our several vocations useful here, and in his own due time and way, everlastingly happy. Signed, G. Washington. In the mid-19th century, Jewish immigration shifted from Sephardic Jews to German Ashkenazic Jews. The primary impetus was the great political and social upheavals in Central Europe in 1848. This was a mass migration, greatly enlarging the Jewish community in the antebellum United States. In time, these German Jews, who incidentally fought on both sides during the Civil War and who both supported and decried slavery, established themselves as a prosperous and important community. These Jews founded many of the synagogues and organizations that we recognize today, such as rabbinic seminaries, the reform movement itself, and many rescue and relief agencies. They played a major role in the next phase of Jewish immigration, the late 19th century, early 20th century immigration of the Jews of Eastern Europe. These Jews were fleeing not just political oppression, but also a threat to their very existence. The spark to this immigration was twofold. The Cossack attacks on Ukrainian Jewish villages and the Canton system in Tsarist Russia, whereby 12-year-old Jewish boys were conscripted into the Russian army for 25-year terms. Becoming a soldier at age 12 meant that Jewish boys could not celebrate a bar mitzvah or marry a Jewish girl. Many families sent their young boys to live with relatives in America with the charge to make enough money to send for the next oldest brother and then the rest of the family, a process that could take as long as a decade or even more. Over 3 million Jews came to America during this great migration, lasting from about 1880 until 1924, when Congress passed legislation severely restricting immigration. In later decades, the United States would accept an extremely limited number of German-Jewish refugees before the advent of the Holocaust. But later, she opened her doors to Jewish refugees from the former Soviet Union in the 1970s and 1980s. Until the beginning of World War II, the American Jewish community was the recipient of charity from the Jewish communities of Europe. This was a poor immigrant community. The first American-born generation was just emerging, 
and Jews were starting to move out of the slums of the Lower East Side of Manhattan and the poor neighborhoods of other large cities. While the established German Jews helped mightily in relief assistance, they also looked askance at these new immigrants who were speaking Yiddish, a polyglot language that they felt bastardized their pure German and praying loudly without decorum. These Eastern European Jewish immigrants were also Zionists. Unlike many of the German Jews already comfortable in their social circles, with little or no desire to establish a Jewish homeland in Palestine. After World War II, this changed, mostly out of necessity. The immigrant generation focused on educating their children so that they could move out of the slums and, in the 1950s, into the emerging suburbs of the United States. Many of these children became doctors, lawyers, teachers, and other professionals. Free tuition at city colleges helped, as did the GI Bill, which assisted veterans returning from war to gain a college education. The rising Jewish middle class of the 1950s and 1960s fueled the American Jewish philanthropic push, both here and abroad, in resettling survivors of the Holocaust and building the nascent state of Israel. This story is primarily a story of Jews above the Mason-Dixon line. In the South, the story was different. Outside of the major cities like Atlanta, Birmingham, and New Orleans, many of the German and later Eastern European Jews peddled their wares from from tiny city to tiny city. They would sell their goods in one town and then move on. When they found a town that accepted them, they stayed. Over time, these Jews established stores in these cities, such as in Greenwood, Mississippi, or Jackson, Tennessee, places that a northerner would never expect to find them. These Jews amalgamated, adapted, and became important parts of the community, often venturing into local politics and civic engagement. And interestingly, most of these Jews did not come through Ellis Island in New York, the major point of embarkation, but rather through Galveston, another major point for immigration. Importantly, they were also white and at minimum accepted the structure of the Southern caste system. At worst, a few embraced segregation and worked against the civil rights movement in the 1960s. But these segregationists were a tiny minority. Most Southern Jews learned how to get along as whites, but not quite as white as their neighbors. However, the children of these Jewish merchants often went to universities like Ole Miss, Tulane, or other Southern schools, never to return to these small towns again. In the later decades of the 20th century, we saw the end of many of these small, isolated Jewish communities, as well as the rise of larger, urbanized Jewish communities in the South and Southwest. Such is the historical view. But of course, there is much more. We'll talk about that after the break. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Before we return to our discussion of the American Jewish experience, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Please remember to rate and review this episode 
as well as previous episodes on Apple, Spotify, and other great podcasting sites. Also, you can like us on Facebook. And I especially hope that you will listen to our episode on anti-Semitism, which dropped last week. One of the most important aspects of the American Jewish community is how decentralized it is. In great part, this is due to the First Amendment of the Constitution, which forbids the establishment of a state religion. And unlike countries such as Canada, Great Britain, or Israel, the American Jewish community receives no government funding for its synagogues, clergy, or schools. We also have no chief rabbis who determine and enforce religious law and practice. The chief rabbis in Israel, for example, determine a person's Jewish status and decide questions of marriage, divorce, and even abortion through their system of rabbinical courts. Not so in the United States. Our decentralized religious structure means that Jews are free to determine their own personal religious paths and even find a synagogue or rabbi more compatible with their preconceived ideas of Jewish identity and are not forced to abide by the decisions of a state-supported religious structure. This leads to a lot of autonomy, personal and communal. Each congregation and each Jew makes its own determination regarding practice, affiliation with a movement, and even the hiring of clergy. And just as important, we Jews self-fund our organizations and institutions. There is no state support for our day schools, for example. In the next few podcasts, we will go into greater depth regarding American Jewish history and the contemporary Jewish community. We will examine the different religious streams in America, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, Hasidic, and others, and even look at the role that Jews have played in the political realm and in the civil rights movement. Next week, we will start with the Orthodox streams of Judaism. Stay tuned. This is very important for non-Jews' understanding of modern-day American Judaism. I want to thank you for listening to Torah for Christians. You can listen to and rate previous episodes on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast outlets. Also, you can like us on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day, and remember, how good and how pleasant it is for us to dwell together in unity. Till we see each other again. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this has been Torah for Christians.